find a Bible. Numbers chapter 22 and beyond. Uh, let me pray. But uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. You guys are the best. Let me pray. Lord, we ask uh, for your hand of favor on our time right now. Would you please speak to each and every one of us? We want to hear your voice. and um, Lord, we want to be your blessed people. And as I look out on this group, as I think about those who are watching along with us online right now, uh, I'm so grateful to do life with this group. And this is a, a blessed group of individuals. So, Lord, thank you, and uh, please have your way in this time. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been tracking with the Israelites in the wilderness for a while now, and we're coming to the conclusion of our series through the book of Numbers, and we're going to look at one last episode today before we uh, close the, the book on that and move on to our next series. But, you know, as I've went through this series together with you, the sentiment that I've had, and it's been expressed to me by others as well, is that these people are, like like Tim said, thick, thick-headed and just, you know, don't, they, they, they're having a hard time tracking with what the Lord is trying to do. And you know, it, it kind of feels that way of like these recurring themes show up week by week of uh, grumbling and complaining and having a hard time uh, getting on the same page with the Lord. And so my expectation at this point of the story as we go through numbers is I, I would expect at some point for God to just run out of patience. Um, I, I struggle with patience these days. Um, I was thinking about this, like Ash put it in our in our wedding vows. It was one of the features that showed up in the wedding vows. And uh, then I was thinking this week, I wonder if she still feels that way about my patience. And, and I think about, especially most recently, all the things that are going on and just my, uh, my lack of patience. And so when I read the story, I'm imagining, okay, we're at a point now where these people have been so resistant to the work of God that, that I would expect that at some point he's just like, look, guys, enough. Like, uh, how, how many times do I have to tell you and you will not get on board with this. So I would actually expect at this point for, for God to say, you know, the, the blessing that you've experienced has come to a conclusion. And now we're moving into new territory. But what we find here in Numbers chapter 22 and following is this reality that God is insistent on blessing his people. That he is determined to bless his people. That this is kind of his heart behind how he feels about this people. And so we find this story, and it's a very fascinating story, about an, an individual named Balaam. And, uh, and what God is underlining throughout this story is God's commitment to blessing his people. So what happens here is the people of God are camped out on the plains of Moab, and uh, they're, they're spreading across this field. And the part that we kind of skipped over from last week to this week was they, they got into a, a fight with the Amorites and they defeated them. And now they're posted up on the plains of Moab. In fact, look at verse 1. It says, Then the Israelites traveled to the plains of Moab and camped along the Jordan across from Jericho. So they're in their tents. They're sprawling out across this area. And the Moabite king looks at them and says, This is problematic for us. And in fact, the story is filled with all kinds of ironies. It's a, 
it's a literary device to help us understand that God is trying to say something here. But there are all of these ironies. There's a king who lives in an established city with his own army, and he probably has a fortified arrangement, and he's looking at these homeless individuals, and he's going, I am fearful of them. Okay, look at verses 2 and 3. Now, Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that the Israelites had done to the Amorites, and Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. He's looking at the, the people that are encamped around them, and he's filled with dread. So they say things like this in verse 4. The Moabites said to the elders of Midian, this horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. There's this fear, this trepidation, there's this dread that's overwhelming this king and his people. So what he does is he seeks out some help. He hires essentially a, uh, a sorcerer for hire, uh, uh, a seer. He's called a prophet here in the story, but it's you know something similar to what we would consider like a palm reader, somebody who could uh, use divination to try to determine what the future is. And then uh, this person also has the ability to speak some things and they happen to come true more often than not. And so the king, Balak, enlists Balaam, this prophet for hire, and he tries to get him on his team. Verses four and five. So Balak, son of Zippor, who's king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor. He's saying, I need your help. I'm worried. I'm frightful. I'm, I'm not sure how this is going to play out, but I want to enlist you. I want to pay you. And I want you to speak some things against this people so that I might be successful in my campaign against them. And in fact, in verse six, he says it like this. This is a letter that he sends out to the prophet for hire. And he's just trying to, he's trying to butter him up. And he says this. I know that whoever you bless is blessed and whoever you curse is cursed. Now that's going to, we'll, we'll circle back to that. That's ironic. He's looking at this guy going, what you say comes true. And so he's trying to hire him and he's trying to get him on board. And um, Balaam has some restraint here and he says, look, I, I, I can only say what the Lord allows me to say. Now you might think that's humility, but really it's just honesty. There's, there's a limitation to his ability, and so he is being honest that I can only say what God wants me to say. Now, Balak, the king, is very insistent, and he says, look, you need to come. I'm going to reward you handsomely. I'm going to pay you tremendously, and you, I just want you to come, and I want you to look at that people, and I want you to speak against them so that what I want to have come true will come true. Now, Balaam is, is willing to say, look, I, I, I'm not sure if I should go with you. I'm not sure what I can do for you. But over and over again, the king insists, I need you to come. I need you to do this. And so he says, okay, fine, I'll, I'll come. Um, but I'm not sure how this is going to play out. So he starts along the way. And uh, verse 21 and 22, Balaam got up in the morning. He saddled his donkey and he went with the Moabite officials. But here's what happens. The Lord is angered by this whole scenario. Verse 22, but God was very angry when he went and the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. The angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. And so here's what's really funny, almost comical about the story. The, the, the spiritually most alert person in the story is a donkey. You know, and you know the other name for a donkey, and that's what you ought to have in your head as we go through this. But this donkey knows better than the prophet for hire or than the regal king. 
The donkey is the most spiritually alert person in the moment. So Balaam is trying to get to this assignment so he can get his paycheck and he's on his way. And the donkey sees the angel of the Lord with the sword drawn and the donkey turns aside initially. And this frustrates Balaam. I've got to get there. I need to get to this place. And you're not going in the direction that I want you to go. And they're going down an alley and it presses against the wall and crushes his foot. And finally, it gets to a situation where the angel of the Lord is right in front of the donkey and the donkey just sits down, just lays down under him. And Balaam is so frustrated that he takes his staff and he begins to beat his donkey. And then God opens the mouth of the donkey. Verse 28, the Lord opened the donkey's mouth and it said to Balaam, what have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? But you got to imagine what that was like. You probably, you know, Balaam's probably like, what did I put in my coffee today? And wiping his eyes and going, my donkey's talking. And the donkey's saying things like this, what have I done to make you beat me these three times? But he's, you know, he's mad. Balaam's upset by how everything is playing out. And so he says, you've made me a fool. If only I had a sword in my hand. Again, tremendous irony. If only I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your own donkey, which you've always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? He says, no, no, I guess not. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing there with his sword drawn. So he bowed down low, and he fell face down. And the angel of the Lord then is able to declare to him, this path that you are on is a reckless what you are doing here is a foolish thing. This assignment that you are taking on is a reckless reality. As we think about this setup to the story and the lessons that we're going to learn as, the, as, as Balaam then begins to speak, we'll, we'll hear him speaking in just a minute. And he gives us five different lessons. But even before we get to those lessons, I want us to think about this thing that, that Balak is doing, that the king is doing, that often I find going on with us as well. Here's what we tend to to do. We get an idea in our heads of what we want to see come true, and we demand that it happen. And often we try to solve our problems without God, or we try to put a little religious veneer on the things that we want to see come true. Just like the king. He says, here's a people, they're my problem, I want them gone, this is what I'm insisting upon, and I'm going to try to get a little bit of spirituality going to try to make my plan come true. And unfortunately, that's how a lot of us operate. We don't, we don't look to God. We don't ask what God wants to see happen. Instead, we say, this is what's happening. This is what I want. This is what I need. And now I need to figure out how to get a little bit of spirituality on my side so that I know that it will come true. And many of us do the same thing. At least I do. Um, but what we also see here is that the solutions of the world are comically limited in their ability to help. When we don't factor in God, but we look at other strategies, it is it, one of the things that we have to acknowledge is that those strategies are incredibly limited in their ability to help. Kent Hughes puts it like this. He says, look, this whole plan and strategy is both expensive and uncertain. It's expensive because he's having to pay for it, and then he has to go through all of these very uh, you know, expensive sacrifices and rituals and all these different things. But the words that kind of mark the leadership of Balaam is perhaps and maybe. Like, we don't even know if this is going to happen, but this is what we do. 
So we need to be careful about thinking about our plans and saying, this is what has to happen, and I need to figure out how to get God on my side. Well, the king takes Balaam up to a place where he can see the tents of the Israelites, and he's asking him to curse them. And so Balaam goes through this process of preparation and ritual and routine, and he hears from the Lord and the first lesson that we find first lesson that he offers up, and it's from the mouth of this unbelieving prophet, the first lesson is God has a people, and those people are blessed. This is verses 1 to 12 of chapter 23. God has a people, and those people are blessed. Verse 8, how can I curse those whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce those whom the Lord has not denounced? I can't speak ill of these people. God has already declared them to be something, and it is not cursed, and it is not a denouncement. God is speaking blessing over his people. He says, I cannot overrule what God has declared. Verse 9, he says, from the rocky peaks I see them, from the heights I view them. I see a people who live apart and do not consider themselves one of the nations. This people, they are a special people. They are God's own people. They are set apart for the purposes of God. So they are a blessed people. They are a different people. They're not just one of the nations. They are God's treasured possession. Verse 10, he goes on to say, Who can count the dust of Jacob or or number even a fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous and may my final end be like theirs. He's looking at them and he's saying, These people are incredible and they're numerous. They're, they're They're like dust. And here's what's ironic about that. He's actually kind of alluding to what God said about the Israelites when he first established them. Way back in Genesis, when God said to their forefather Abraham that he was going to become this great nation, he described his descendants like dust. That's how great this people would become. And here we have this unbelieving mercenary prophet affirming that reality. You, this people that I'm looking on, they have become as numerous as the dust of the ground. And then he says this, let me die the death of the righteous, and may my final end be like theirs. What they are, that's what I would like to be. And unfortunately, that sentiment is not followed through on, but he's able to say that in this moment. These people are incredibly blessed, and I wish that I were like them. Lesson number one, God has a people, and those people are blessed. This is the reality of the people of God. When God establishes his own people, with Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12, he says, I will make you a great nation. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Whoever blesses you will be blessed. Whoever curses you, I will curse. That is God's promise. That is his declaration. And that is the truth then about this people. Here's who they are. Here's who we are. Then we get to Numbers, the book that we're in, and we find out that that blessing persists. In fact, Numbers chapter 6, we find out that there's this thing that the priests are supposed to do. They're supposed to speak the blessing out. And we sing about this. In fact, one of the songs we've been doing quite often comes from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And this is just a continual reminder. Here's who you are. You are a blessed people. You are a blessed people. This is what is true of the Israelites, but it's also true of us. The blessing of God falls to those who are followers of his. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount, Lord willing, 
in a short amount of time, we as a church will go through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. But at the front end of it, the Lord himself, Jesus, gives uh, this sermon, and, and he starts it out with what's called the Beatitudes. And he gives several different aspects of God's blessing. He says things like this, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who um, are persecuted for righteousness sake, and other things like that. But but that, what he's saying is, here's what it's like to live in relationship with God. There is a blessing. It is blessed to be in a relationship with God. And that's what I want for you. That's what I want for us. We are God's people, and we therefore have God's blessing. The second lesson that we find is that God has a word, and it is unchanging. So after the first lesson is declared by Balaam, the king says, Time out, dude. You're not doing your job here. I hired you to curse them. You're doing the exact opposite of that. You're speaking a word of blessing on this people. I don't understand what the problem is. Let's go to another location. Let's try again. Let's get this thing going the right direction here. So they go up to another location. They look out on the people. And, and this time he goes through that ritual and that ceremony again and he comes back with this word and this time he says God has spoken and does not change his mind. God has a firm word, a sure word and he gives it to us in verses 18 to 20. Let me give you a sample of it from verses 19 and 20. He says God is not human, that he should lie, not a human being, that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I have received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot change it. God has spoken, and it is not revisable. It is not amendable. God has declared this people to be his people and to be blessed, and he is not going to change his mind on this one. These are God's people. So God has a sure word, a firm word, a word of promise that is not revisable. So for us, as we think about that, we need to be a people of God's word. He has spoken and he doesn't change. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't speak and then go, wait, 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 I got that one wrong. Let me take that back. I misspoke. No, no, no. God has spoken and that word is a firm and sure word. So we ought to be immersing ourselves in God's word and building our lives accordingly. And if your steady diet is primarily your social media feed and the news outlets and talking heads, and that's how you're trying to process the world, I want to encourage you as, my, as, as a pastor, I want to encourage you to go to the Word of God to allow this to inform how you think and feel and act and live. When God speaks, it is significant. So go to His Word that He has preserved for us in Scripture and hear His voice. And let, your, let, let your life be marked by it. That's the second lesson. The third lesson is that what makes this people so, so incredible is God's presence. Verses 21 to 24. What makes the people of God so special is that God is with them. So he says in verse 21, no misfortune is seen in Jacob, no misery, misery observed in Israel. He goes on to say, the Lord their God is with them. The shout of the king is among them. Here's what makes the people of God so unique special God is among us he is with us his presence is the game-changing reality that he that he draws near to us and we do life in harmony with him 
is what makes us unique and special. This is true of the people from the very beginning. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And think about the story of Joseph where he was thrown into, uh, into a pit and then sold into slavery and then wrongly accused and arrested. And what's the dominant theme in the life of Joseph? The Lord is with him. The Lord is with him. So the blessing of God isn't necessarily circumstances. It's not just that things go well for the people of God. It's that when they're going through the wilderness or through uh, all kinds of you know, tragedy and difficulty, the thing that makes the people of God so blessed is that God is with them. He is with us. In fact, in Deuteronomy 4, 7, this is a feature about the people of God that is attractive. Deuteronomy 4, 7, what other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us? Here's Here's what we need to recognize. What makes us very special, it's not our talents, it's not our abilities, it's not our ingenuity, it's not, you know, it's not our wisdom, it's the fact that God has chosen to draw near. And we do life beside him. We do life with him, and that then changes everything. God is with us. He, he's with us in the sense that he rescues. Verse 22, God brought them out of Egypt. He's with us in the sense that he strengthens us. The Lord, uh, verse 22, they have the strength of a wild ox. He's with us in the sense that he protects us. Verse 23, there is no divination against Jacob, no evil omens against Israel. And therefore we come to the conclusion, look at God among us. Verse 23, it will now be said of Jacob and of Israel, see what God has done. Ray from Central Beloit says it like this, look at God. Right? We come to a place where we recognize God is with us, his presence is with us, and, and what, what people should come away with then is this awareness of God is with this people. May that be true of us. We are God's people, and he has promised his presence to us. And if that is true, then, you know, come what may. Like the, the argument in the book of Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? We're more than conquerors in Christ. So we have the Lord with us, and that is enough. Well, again, the king is very upset. I mean, he's trying to pay this dude to curse this people, and what he's getting is the exact opposite over and over and over again. So he says, neither curse them nor bless them at all. But let's try this third location. Right? This is foolishness, but he thinks that Maybe if he tries a little different angle, he can get the cursing to come. So they get to another location, and this time Balaam says, okay, I recognize that God is pretty determined to bless this people. I'm not even going to use divination anymore. I'm just going to look to the wilderness. And he hears the voice of the Lord, and he gives his fourth lesson for us. God is able to provide sufficiently. Verses 1 to 9. God is able to provide for his people in a way that is sufficient. How beautiful are your tents, Jacob, your dwelling places, Israel. Like valleys they spread out, like gardens beside a river. Like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Water will flow from their buckets. Their seed will have abundant water. Their king will be greater than a gag. Their kingdom will be exalted. And he goes on to say, may those who bless you be blessed. And those who you curse, be cursed. He's looking at them and he's saying, look, God has his favor on these people. Everything that they touch flourishes. 
I wish that were true of us. We buy plants to replace them later on. We, we're not like the Israelites, but here he's saying everything they touch is luscious. There's water flowing. Their, their crops are doing fine. Everything that they do is blessed. He's saying the Lord provides for his people. He takes care of his own. And again, he's saying, may those who bless you be blessed and those who you curse be cursed. And here, again, it's that allusion to the promise that God made to Abraham at the very beginning. That this people, they are a blessed people. Well, the king at this point is super upset, as you can imagine. If you've ever hired someone to do a job and they've not come through on it, you can understand the frustration. He's At this point, he's saying, fine. I wanted to pay you and you're not going to get paid anymore. I wanted to give you this rich and handsome reward, but God prevented you from that, so go home. Like, this didn't work out the way that I planned. And so he dismisses him, but before Balaam goes, he goes, hold up, God has a couple more things to say. Just a moment while I have a captive audience, here's the fifth lesson. God has a future plan. You might want to be aware of this one. God has a plan, verses 15 to 25. There is a ruler that is coming that you should be aware of. You're a king. There's a king coming that you ought to take note of. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Verse 19 says, a ruler will come out of Jacob. There's a king that everyone is going to take note of. There's a king who's coming from this people that everyone is going to bow down and pay respect and honor to. This is the star of Jacob. And as you can imagine, he is not just talking about David, the king that will come down the pipe, or any of David's descendants. He is talking about King Jesus. He is talking about the star of Jacob, the Lord himself. There is one who is coming that everyone ought to take note of. And here's what he's going to do. He will judge the nations. He will put the nations on trial, and he will make all things right. That's what judge means in the Bible. It means that that he is coming to set things as they ought to be. So he will judge the nations, and he then lists all of these different nations in verses 17 to 24. All of these superpowers of the day. So he says, he'll crush the foreheads of Moab. You're all worried about this? You should be. The Moabites are in trouble. He will come and he will crush the foreheads of Moab. Edom will be conquered. Amalek was the first among the nations, but their end will be utter destruction. Or verse 22, the Kenites will be destroyed. And then he says, alas, who can live when God does this? Ships will come from the shores of Cyprus. They will, they will subdue Ashur and Eber, but they too will come to a ruin. Every superpower that you're aware of is nothing in comparison to this king and his people. He will come and he will judge the nations. Now, this is good news for us, too, because I think the last little political cycle has revealed something about us. We're very preoccupied with who's ruling our nation, but we need to put it into this perspective. There's a king coming that I can totally get on board with his plan. And he is powerful like no other king has ever been powerful. He will set all things right. And all the nations and all the peoples are nothing to him. He will judge the nations. No superpower is too much for him, whether the ones listed here or the ones that we're familiar with or 
the United States of America. Nothing is too difficult for this king to, to capably rule over. And so like Frank Francis Piper puts, he says the kingdoms of this world, they're scaffolding for the building of the church. The, the nations of this world, the, the kingdoms of this world, all the kings and all the peoples are just, they're just scaffolding for what God is doing as he is building up his holy and blessed people. And that perspective then changes everything. God has a plan for the future, and it's a plan I can get on board with. He's going to make all things right, and he's going to judge the nations. So that plan is coming true. The Lord has come humbly in a manger as that star of Jacob, but he is coming again to rule and to judge. And when he does, he will make all things right. So as we look at this story, imagine Imagine how the Israelites would feel about this story as they hear about this prophet for hire and his message that is supposed to be one of cursing, but it is a message of persistent blessing. God has a people and that people are blessed and God is with them and God is for them and God is providing for them and God has a future for them. And that people, it's not just the Israelites. It's, it's all of us. It's all who believe on the Lord. In fact, in the New Testament, that promise that is rehearsed by Balaam, but originally given to Abraham, the Apostle Paul puts it like this. He says, this is the good news. Galatians 3.8, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, and he announced the gospel in advance to Abraham by saying this, all nations will be blessed through you. What God was declaring at the beginning about this people and that message that was rehearsed that would give them great confidence of God is for us, he is with us, he is providing for us, he will protect us, he has a future for us. That leads us to the good news of the gospel that God is through that people corralling all who will believe on the Son with faith and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through them. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what we're here to celebrate today. That's why we're a church. Because of what Jesus has done and because of his electing love for a people and how that spills out to all the nations of the earth. And that's why, that's why we're here. That's the good news of the gospel. That God sent his son to be that redeeming reality. And so we claim that, that, that reality of being the people of God and being blessed by God and having God with us and having... God near to us and having God provide for us, that's who we are. And that identity then changes everything. We are God's people. His holy nation in the book of First Peter, his royal priesthood, the people of God. That's who we are. So let's declare his praises. If you would, please stand with me. We'll invite the team to come and lead us once more. But let's pray first. Lord, we're grateful for stories and the way that they capture our attention and our imagination and they teach us things about you. Lord, we pray that you would help each and every one of us to recognize that you are at work in this world and um, help us to avoid the foolish strategies of seeking the wisdom of this world to be our solution. But instead, let us look to your sure word. Help us to believe your voice and help us to recognize that our identity is in you because of what you have done. And 
sending of your son. Lord, help us to be your blessed people for your glory.